Hello, and welcome to Sunflower Sutras. I'm your host, Tara. To begin, I would like to read Thomas Bailey Aldrich's A Mood. A blight, a gloom, I know not what has crept upon my gladness, some vague, remote, ancestral touch of sorrow or of madness, a fear that is not fear, a pain that has not pain's insistence, a sense of longing or of loss in some foregone existence, a subtle hurt that never pen has writ nor tongue has spoken, such hurt perchance as nature feels when a blossom bough is broken. And with us today, we have a person who is very near and dear to me, my friend, a local activist and poet herself, Ashanti Spears. Hi, Tara. Thank you so much for having me. I've been listening to your show, and I just want to say you are excellent at what you do. Oh, oh put me on the spot. <laughs> Me and Ashanti have known each other for quite some time now. We uh, actually went to the same high school together, and it was just kind of an immediate kinship of like, oh, troublemaker, I am too. <laughs> oh my goodness, Tara. Okay, so both of us were kind of emo kids, except <laughs> Tara took it to another level. She was an expert at it. Uh, she would dye her hair stone cold black. She had the bangs in the front and she wore those chains on her pants. It was excellent. Pretty great to see. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so for anyone who's curious, it's definitely not a phase. You just expand. <laughs> That's true. Um, I, I think... I'm realizing that as an adult, just like being part of a writer is just experiencing a lot of blue moods, but it puts you in the mood to write, I think, so. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but it seems like a lot of the most inspiring emotions that us young people, I hate using that term, but yes, <laughs> we get inspired by the, the darkness. I, I think I was reading and listening to and about Emily Dickens and how she would wear all white, actually, um, and she would be alone in her home and write. And most of her work was actually published after she died. So um, that's really interesting, just seeing like someone wearing all white, seemingly being happy, but then experiencing those times where they just want to be reclusive and write and then not having the confidence to publish while they were alive. But I mean, she was so prolific. She is amazing and brilliant. And just because you're a little bit depressed sometimes doesn't mean that you can't be brilliant and expressive. And you know, it's funny with, uh, with Emily's case, because on one hand, she was this super reclusive person. But on the other, like, if I'm remembering correctly, she actually considered white to be like the color of passion. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, just the, the weird dichotomy of artists. Yeah, <laughs> very interesting. So thanks for having me here. I think what brought me here was um, you were curious about all of the things that I've been doing in the community. Um, I haven't been doing writing as much, as you know. I haven't been going to the open mics and, and so forth, but I've been traveling the country a bit, been meeting lots of new people, and I just seeing, coming back to Topeka and seeing how much is happening here is really awesome. You're a part of that, <laughs> Tara. Um, 
But no, like I went to Washington, D.C. last year with the Poor People's Campaign. Um, I was one of the state ambassadors. And so for those of you that don't know, the Poor People's Campaign was an idea that Martin Luther King Jr. had. Um, in 1967, he actually went to the Tennessee Sanitation March and died shortly after that, but he wanted to unite the poor um, and take them to Washington, D.C. So he died before he could see his dream come true, um, and his wife took people to the Washington National Mall to camp out for two weeks, um, and they built their own village, essentially, on the mall. And so that since has been outlawed, you can no longer camp out on the Washington Mall, um, but you can march. So we were out there. We marched to, I want to say, we didn't go all the way to the Capitol. We marched a little bit throughout the city. It was about... 100,000 people at least. I was on the front lines of that, but it's really interesting. Like I said, coming back to Topeka, being part of that history, I did a poem for the Poor People's Campaign at a local church here in 2017 um, that ended up on the website. And so being a part of the art and the culture is very important. And I think that, you know, in another 50 years, people are going to see that as a very important point of time. And even beyond the Poor People's Campaign and like physically going all the way out to DC, you have just for like the past few years, so just it's one mission statement after another after another. You've been you've been busy with a lot of projects and programs. For real though. Yeah. Um, okay, so the wave of my life since 2016. I was a um, state delegate for Bernie Sanders. Uh, shortly after I went to caucus at the primary, I was selected to go to like the congressional district meeting. Um, I didn't speak there to go to the Democratic National Convention, but um, a couple of great folks from the community got to go and experience that. So um, I didn't go to DNC, like I said. But after that, I was a part of a nice coalition of folks, the Kansas People's Agenda. And so that turned into 15 different points that people wanted to take to the state house. So Tara, I would like to thank you for performing <laughs> at the first Kansas People's Agenda rally that was at the Capitol in January 2017. That was a really great day. Yeah, I don't think I asked you about how you felt doing that. How was yeah. it? It was, it was a bit scary because I'd never performed in front of that many people before. And of course, you know, a lot of the people there aren't exactly there for the art. They're mostly there for the political speakers. So it's a smidge intimidating at first, but then you see just how responsive they are with the artists because persons like myself and Matt Speech, especially with Matt, like after the performance for his piece, like people were just like hooting and hollering. And it's like, okay, I see how responsive art can make people in the political spectrum. And it's like, oh, wow. After that, it was just kind of exhilarating. Uh, it goes from total fear and anxiety to absolute like euphoria yeah matt um brought a very powerful message i mean as he continues to do but i think don't underestimate your work terry you did an amazing job you came back in 2018 that was especially wonderful and then i think we actually got to record the art this past rally right yeah so i think you did one about uh police state violence that yeah. was very powerful yeah that that was a bit like especially with such a focused in topic it's kind of scary i've never done such a like 
obvious targeted piece before. And so I was just kind of scared with how much people would respond to it. But again, the people that come for the Kansas poor uh, person's agenda, like, oh my gosh, they're really, they're really supportive. And I think that they're very open-minded to hearing perspectives they haven't heard before. Mm-hmm. At the very least, I would hope so. Yeah, and I don't, I don't even think that piece was anything that would maybe be controversial. I think you, you really tasked people with looking into what can be done. I don't think you said anything bad. You said, I hope that people continue to look into this issue and keep fighting for it. And that was, that was really important. So again, thank you. I'm sorry. I got off topic. Oh no, it's fine. Um, (laughs) I just kind of ramble sometimes. So back to Kansas people's agenda. So I helped to organize that with a great group of folks. Um, Hundreds of people came together on that end And then that was around the 14th, I believe. And then almost in a week's time, I went to uh, Washington, D.C. for the Women's March with a wonderful group of women um, in Lawrence. So uh, we went from donations that were given to us uh, from, I mean, across Kansas, really, for us to go. So we went to Washington, D.C. We marched. We did some live video feeds. Um, we made signs to, you know, represent, like, how we felt as women of color. That was really what the cohort was. It was myself and two other black women. And then there were some uh, Latina women that, that went as well. Um, and so we came back after that experience. We gave an art show at the Lawrence Creates Maker Space. And from there, uh, we didn't know what was next. So we came together as a collective of writers, of visual artists, of uh, one lady's actually a puppet maker, Olivia uh, Hernandez is a puppet maker. Uh, Marilyn Inorjosa is a painter that uh, has a BFA from KU. And so these ladies came together uh, month after month and then decided to paint a mural on the Lawrence Public Library. So there were about, they went to, you know, a year of public meetings to see if the public would be interested. And that was really great. Like, uh, I, I helped to organize and bring people together, but it wasn't just me. There were a lot of women that came together for that. Um, so that was in 2017. So 2018, I came back for the Kansas People's Agenda, um, again, but I think towards the end of 2017, I just gotten a, a job that took me out of Lawrence to, uh, Olathe. So I was working in Olathe, um, and linking up with some poor people's campaign folks there. Um, so we had meetings to take six weeks of action in Topeka. So we were deciding to target the Department of Children and Families just to show protest um, against some lost children that had gone pretty much, you know, out of the purview of the state for a while. We didn't know what happened to, you know, these children. Um, so we did that. And then we also met to just have different actions. We actually did a storm on Chris Kobach's office. Um, a part of the Poor People's Campaign. I believe that was the second week of action. So the Poor People's Campaign last year across the country did that, you know, at various state houses. And uh, the first action, first week was actually shutting down an intersection. So we ended up getting, I think, about 20 arrests 
you know, we got the attention of media to bring uh, to talk about poverty. So that was good. We were in the media, got some really good coverage from that. Yeah, and there's so many other things that just keeping in touch throughout the years where I'm just like, right now, I'm, they're all flooding my brain. I'm just like, oh, I remember this thing that you did. Like, I remember that really, like, intense rally that happened at Lawrence uh, immediately after the election results came through. Oh, my gosh, that was a night. Oh, yeah. Okay, so there was a rally um, protesting 45, and... I had no no hand in planning that. Um, I just want to let you know. Yeah. I think that was a night I just happened to see you. Yeah. Um, but I, I might have been out like on a date or something. And then we saw people in the street and then we went out and like started walking. But it's just, I mean, so so one, one thing like that, I actually went to a protest with uh, my friend, like I said, Olivia Hernandez. And a few other folks, we went to go protest the ban uh, of Muslim folks at the uh, airport. And like a lot of people from Kansas City and Lawrence and I mean, shoot all the way down from Wichita went up to Kansas City to do this protest. So that I mean, that happened for months. People were just kind of throwing events up on Facebook and then just all like, you know, going to the same place. So I think that was just one of those things where like, you might have seen something online and like, I saw people walking past. (laughs) That was a really busy time. I remember my exhilaration at seeing you is because like you had just gotten back from doing stuff like transporting of aid to the Dakota Access Pipeline stuff. Oh, yeah, I did go to Standing Rock. Yeah, I did, didn't I? Um, <laughs> a busy life. <laughs> um, goodness. Uh, well, it's like I start talking and my mind goes blank. Um, no, I went to Standing Rock. That was 2016. So that was before the election was Standing Rock. Yeah. So yeah, that I would have seen you like that would have been, yeah, like you said, a couple weeks after the election. So I was at Standing Rock a week before Halloween. Um, I went to the clergy march that, uh, they did that up at the road, um, that was shut down by the, um, Bureau of Indian Affairs. Yeah. So we had taken some water up. Uh, I did direct action twice up there. Yeah. The, all of the media, see, it's really weird, like going back to that time because you see so many stories of, just violence coming from protesters or people that were up there to cause ruckus. And it wasn't like that at all, Tara. Um, Yeah, no, I like the stories that you guys brought back. And then the stories that like other people that I knew who like were coming back with photography, were coming back with journalist expose type stuff. And it's just, it was disgusting. Like some of the stuff you're telling me about, one of the first things you were telling me about was like the need for like earplugs because they were doing like sonic attacks on people, like just blasting them with such a loud, horrible noise that it was driving people deaf. So Ocheti Sakiwan camp was about 20 minutes from a town called Cannonball, North Dakota. So you drive down this long road, you see, you see this casino slash hotel, and then the Bureau of Indian Affairs actually shut down the road between camp and Cannonball, North Dakota. So, um, driving past 
the Bureau of Indian Affairs, there was only one way off the street. The Lakota tribe actually exploded a truck on the road. So there was only one way in and out that the Bureau of Indian Affairs was blocking. So around the camp at night, they would actually set up these like Hummer trucks with these lights that would shine down into camp. And so from those trucks, if, you know, they would drive those trucks around to like the head of the Missouri River. And if too many people were there, they would just sound off these cannons and they disorient people. Some people were losing their hearing. And so when I went there, um, a lot of the big news media was there. So they weren't doing that. There were actually two days where there were no arrests made because the New York Times was there. Yeah, so there were a lot of big media outlets that stopped a lot of that violence. But um, one of my my deepest held memories from that time was just the, the camaraderie of, you know, the different types of people that were doing direct action. I remember there was a line of cops on one side of the river and other folks doing direct action on the other side. And so some people would go in the water and wait in the river and they actually weren't pepper spraying people at that point, but they did deploy some sound. And so people were getting out of the water and they were actually turning blue because it was, you know, during the winter. Um, and there was one man that had, um, a safety, uh, blanket or an emergency blanket on him. And he only had pants on. He didn't have a shirt. The water was pretty, pretty cold. And I remember just holding him and crying because, you know, there's no reason that people should have to, uh, you know, stand in water to protect a drinking source. It just doesn't make much sense. Yeah. It's that kind of level of intensity that I have admired you for all these years because being in university, I felt that like, oh, I can't just drop off and do these things. And meanwhile, you decided that you're going to take, like you said, direct action with your life and you were going to the sources of the miseries happening um, in our country. And there's been times where I've been scared for your safety and it's not like you were saying for our listeners at home that don't quite understand it, it's not the protesters you have to worry about. It's the alleged authority and their brutality that you have to worry about. And that's what I've been worried about uh, all these years, just thinking about my friend doing these really important but scary things. Oh, well, Tara, thank you. I think a lot of people were concerned for me when I went to the Women's March. And I, I mean, that was a highly visible, you know, action. Something about Washington, D.C. is a very interesting place. So most of Washington, D.C. is Democrat. Actually, 97% of the area of Washington, D.C. voted for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. So it's a pretty liberal spot. Um, so like, I mean, at the women's market, there were cops protesting, you know, it's pretty open. So I think people, you know, they see an action like that. They're like, oh, there's a lot of people. We should be worried about this when really, I mean, cops were just looking at people protesting. It wasn't a big deal. But like you said, there are these moments of intensity when you're standing in the face of power, of like something crucial happening. And there may not be a lot of media coverage about it because, you know, everything is pretty quiet on, you know, on that stuff. So yeah, the Women's March, those big actions like that are not things that people should be worried about as far as a safety concern for folks that may be going. But it it can get kind of uh, dangerous at times, but no, not a lot of stuff in DC is too, too bad. 
Well, kind of bringing things back home as far as like um, project focus. Part of what you wanted to come here to talk about today was uh, discussing our upcoming Aaron Douglas Arts Fair. Yes. Okay. So I enjoy activism and art is very important for any kind of community focus because if you're not bringing people together then I mean the work is kind of you know not going to happen so you know the Aaron Douglas Art Park came in 2006 and since then people thousands of people have been drawn to um, show their art bring their children and just experience the humanities in community and so the Aaron Douglas Arts Park is in a pretty low-income area so it's good that you know those are the people that are benefiting from this fair it's free and open to the public and this year I am planning along with you Tara and Sunflower Sutras um, a poetry pavilion so that's going to be really interesting just having you know the open mic that you so graciously agreed to sponsor (laughs) that's going to be really cool so yeah I had performed last year on the legacy stage, but this year it's going to be totally different because you have this initiative, you have this dream of what's going to be happening this year that you're trying to make reality with uh, our current Kansas Poet Laureate, Huascar Medina. And from what I've heard of it so far, like the postulating. It's going to sound really cool, but could you talk a little bit more about the idea of the, of the tent? Sure. Okay. So uh, Poetry Pavilion is just, just rolls off the tongue. It just sounds so beautiful. And it also sounds massive and it will be. So there is a mural in the arts park where Legacy Stage used to sit and that will not be there this year. We're going to have kind of a wedding tent of sorts. We'll start the day off with some poetry and then midday we'll have a workshop then after that we'll have your open mic where people that maybe attended the workshop or maybe weren't on the slate to perform will perform and oh gosh it's gonna be a wonderful day since we have Waskar Medina um, we're actually hoping to have all five poet laureates to come out and participate. So, I mean, we're expecting a draw from all over the state. It's going to be really great. I'm excited at just the sheer amount of voices we're going to be having because on our plan so far, it's like, okay, like 13 devoted slots for for poets. That's not including the five for the poet laureates. And then we have, like you said, the open mic section, which is going to be for anyone who, for whatever reason, wasn't available or was kind of nervous about it. And then we hopefully give them the inspiration and courage to come up and perform themselves. And then we're going to have the the two workshops, which is going to be super fun. And it's just, it's like literally going to be an all day, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., just space devoted just solely to poetry and all of the factions that make up what poetry is. And I don't know if Topeka's ever had anything quite like that before. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, we have so many poets here, so many different voices. And one of the best things about having a poet laureate like Waskar Medina is that he's done slam poetry. He's done, you know, more of an academic tier level of poetry. He's done just all sorts of different types of work. It's really great to see 
um, and how many different spaces he's been in, right? Um, but also, there are so many different poets that have written books that go to coffee shops that have been doing this work all over the state. And just to try to bring as many of those voices to Topeka, um, people that have written books as well. So uh, we're looking at having a space where poets can sell their work as well, because poetry is art. And this is an art fair. So yeah. just having that dedication to local Kansas poetry, to local Topeka poetry is important because Legacy Stage was great for that sort of thing, but there wasn't anything devoted just to poetry. It was, you know, everything else that's not music is going to be on the Legacy Stage. So there were some dancers. We've had some actors on stage, but, I mean, there really is, like, a big home for poetry in Kansas. Yes. I think that even our show, not to boast too much, but we've been trying to prove the point that they're in the Topeka area. Northeast Kansas is just this bastion of poetic excellence. And so that's what makes me really excited. Because like you said, last year on the legacy stage, it was this like mixed media thing. There was a couple of us poets, and then there was dancers, there's different types of dancers. And it was like this really great thing. And it was just not to say that focus is an important part, but it just kind of felt like a, hey, can you do this? Hey, we need someone to fill in time thing. And here is this effort that is months in the making um, from wonderful people like yourself who are trying to combat a kind of idea of apathy and just I will hesitate to use the word ignorance because of its negative connotation, but like it is ignorance that people are ignorant of just what their hometown has to offer. And so this just completely concentrated effort to showcase the poetry is so exciting to me. And it's hopefully going to be perpetuating like the open mic scene here in Topeka. Topeka is going to be showcasing itself, especially through the Aaron Douglas Arts Fair this year, as a town to consider when you're thinking of arts. Like, don't just think, oh, I have to go to Lawrence. Don't just think, oh, I have to go to KCMO. Topeka is an option too. I, I don't know if this is exactly appropriate, but uh, when I do travel, I tell people one of the greatest things about my hometown is that the longest running open mic in this state for five years has been run by two lesbians. Yes. It's great. Just that alone, like five years in this state, five years running, just the consistency, the different voices that they bring, um, Sue Edgerton and Annette Billings bring to the, to the space, to the state, and they are really staples of poetry. And they've done a lot of work to build this scene. Yes, Annette especially. She's just this like actual matriarch of poetry here in town. Like every single young poet says the exact same thing. It's like, oh, Annette's my mom. Annette's, Annette is all of our mothers. She just has taken all of us in. And she was actually the first person to get me published. And that story wow. is very common for a lot of people. Just like, oh, Annette was the first person to this, to that. And it's our lesbian mothers, Annette and Sue. <laughs> yeah, two years ago, um, Annette actually reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to be one of the headlining poets for the 63rd anniversary of Brown v. Board. Um, so that was my first paid poetry gig. Oh, wow. So I thought that was 
that was just wonderful for her to be able to empower, you know, different. And, and like you said, so many poets have that story within that of her not only holding the presence in the space for poetry, but actually empowering and letting words live, you know, through publication and through getting paid for work. Yes. And just the reference. Yes. Oh, gosh. Yeah, she's amazing. And that's the kind of of personalities, the kind of actual people, the grit behind the art that Topeka has. And that's what frustrates me. Obviously, when we were kids, we were obviously of the mindset of like, oh, I'm going to get the hell out of Topeka as soon as I can. And then, you know, a lot of us do, but then people like you and me, we stay behind and we're like, nah, we're going to make Topeka be our Topeka. We're going to help Topeka because we see the potential in it. And there's just so many amazing people in Topeka that are worth saving Topeka for. And I do just want to say Highland Park High School has a bad reputation for some reason, but most of the great art in Kansas, I would argue, has been from people that either live in that area or have gone to that school. Yes. Um, we developed very strong voices. I know, I think a year before I graduated from Highland Park, there was actually a man that he played professional basketball in Australia. And that was a pretty big story for a while. I mean, Highland Park High School is the only high school to participate in the American High School Theater Festival from Kansas twice. Um, and that happened at the Fringe Festival in Scotland. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of art that comes from that side of town, from Highland Park, from people that have gone to Highland Park. I mean, the teachers are amazing, and they are artists themselves a lot of times. Yeah. I mean, Topeka is a great arts town, and I think it's important that people see that folks that maybe have come from some disadvantage have helped to build the scene. Speaking from my own perspective, I have the unique situation of being born and brought up in Central, but then in my formative years living in the Highland Park area. So that's obviously how we met each other at Highland Park. And then I uh, now currently I live back in Central, and Central is where the Aaron Douglas Arts Fair is. It's in basically the heart of Topeka. And it's in this spot that has this really bad reputation. So that's part of why I love this fair as much as I do is that it brings people there because I've legitimately heard, especially going to Washburn University, a lot of people at the university are not from the same parts of town that we're from. And I've heard some very disparaging comments and about things like, oh, I would never go to Southeast Topeka or, oh, Central scares me. Here is an arts fair, the arts fair of Topeka, and it's in Central. Yes, so there are two arts fairs in Topeka, the Mulvane Arts Fair that happens and then the Aaron Douglas Art Fair. But the Aaron Douglas Art Fair has produced so many professional artists. We have the Brown v. Board Mural that happened. A lot of those artists have shown their work in the Aaron Douglas Arts Fair. They've gotten work from them just participating. And this year, um, we've been creating innovations such as Poetry Pavilion, and we have our first three-dimensional artist chosen. Um, so that's like, that's really cool. Um, Scott Weir makes cigar boxes into diddly bows and uh, like these guitar uh, looking things. So, I mean, just the brilliance that has come out of the Aaron Douglas Arts Fair, the wide range of murals, and just, just the love of art that 
Topeka has been experiencing in a wave has come from Aaron Douglas Art Fair. And yes. there's, there's, you really can't deny that. That's another thing that I love about the fair is that it actually truly is art. It's not just painting. It's actual art. And on the note of art, mm -hmm. would you be so kind as to read us a piece or two of your own? Oh, gosh. Um... <laughs> Yeah, so I didn't want to do anything political. I kind of wanted to get back to my roots of love poetry a little bit. Kind of self-love poetry, stepping into your own power, your own bodily autonomy is important for me. And it's important that I get to experience others doing that as well. I mean, that's why I love going to open mics and seeing just the wide range of like experienced poets and then poets that are just doing it, them claiming that space as their own and them claiming their own power, claiming their own voice. Um, so this is back to my roots. I'm trying to reclaim myself in this poetry. So this is called Sometimes. Men I've collected find each other on my mantle. There's a mental image I keep of one, lifting me off my feet, smashing my backside into my refrigerator, leaving a dent on the door. His feet firmed, planted, while he stood like a tree, second. Picture me, displaying myself openly, grasping and gasping in a puddle of three. Our sweat left in the shaggy carpet, four. Upon opening my apartment door, I met with two eyes that tell me the time I oblige. Five. I'm launched back into it. Back into it. I have a long list of images. I'm not ashamed of them. I tell myself that I'm deserving of consent. I am worthy of fun and healthy communication and fierce boundaries. So I say, I say, no, wait, touch me here. Touch me here. My collection grows like an evening shadow in the summer. Yes. Yes, slow. I've been molding myself into an emotional physique of my pleasing. This body is mine. So that is just saying that there were some men that I wasn't meaning to collect. Some body that I did not want on my body. I said, no, don't touch me here. Do not touch me. Hear me. Hear me. See, some men see themselves as trophies. As shiny, they try to clear a space for themselves to place you outside of your own picture. To all of the ones that are out of place, I'm taking the pictures that are burned into my head and putting them into the fireplace. I'm taking this pile of ash, sweeping it onto the front porch. Here, take your souvenirs now. They have no spot left with any room I occupy. Take your shit and go. Thank you, Ashanti. Thank you so much for having me, Tara. This was a pleasure, and it was really exciting because also, you know, getting to reminisce with a friend about some of those, like, old things. It's like, oh, my gosh, our lives. <laughs> and um, it feels ethereal almost, kind of dreamy because we're broadcasting from the library. <laughs> yeah. This is... Oh my gosh, this is a nerd's dream right here. Yeah. Love it. Absolutely love it. <laughs> and now for our listener submission. This submission is from Ian Bruner. Ian is a Buffalo-born and based writer. He is the author of the poetry collection Ruminations, published by the CWP Collective. 
His short story collections, KOI 961, and The Mermaid have recently been published in the short story collection, Flash of Dark, Volume 2. And his poem, Orbits, was featured in the collection, Life as it Happens, a Nerdfighter poetry book. Other publications include The Death Rider in Rig Welter Press, Sour Milk in Blue Pages Journal, Jungian Psychology in Ghost City Review, and How You're Feeling in the Iconoclast. A Walk I am a solitary person, not by choice or desire, but simply because I am poor at communicating aloud. Social cues confuse me, and for some reason, even when I'm invited, I still feel like an outsider looking in. The landscape of my mind must be a strange, jagged, alien surface. But it's where I spend most of my time. I guess it's where most of us spend all of our time. It's so easy to go someplace new and not experience anything at all. Travel should be enlightening, enriching, invigorating. So here I am in Wales, moving from book to book, world to world. It is autumn here, and the air is brisk. The world is quiet, except for the occasional student laughing, car passing, rain splashing. Honestly, the quiet can be so loud. So at the end of the day, before I head back to the flat to immerse myself in media and drown myself in black tea, I walk the half-mile to the co-op, along the narrow sidewalks and past mismatched buildings. Today I was startled by a group of young girls walking in their school uniforms, purple polos, pleated skirts, and smiles. Laughter, honest-to-goodness laughter. They moved as a unit. It looked so natural. I remember those days back home in high school. I had strived to be a cog in the machine that is friendship. Perhaps that's why I never managed to be an integral part of the machine. It has to be natural, but how can it ever be natural when there comes a time when joy is crushed out of you? The girls are long gone now, but I can still see them clearly. The girl with the black bob gazing over her shoulder, eyes crinkled, teeth white as she laughs earnestly at something the other had said. They must be right around that age, that age where the real world slaps you in the face, the age where I forgot how to laugh and even what my smile looked like. Suddenly the walk seems very tragic. A golden leaf tumbled to the ground in front of me and I trod on it. I know very few people who have managed to keep their joy. They are lanterns hanging along the paths of life to remind us that some of us do make it. But I know deep down that most of us don't. Whatever it is that kindles the flame of joy eventually is smothered. At least one of those girls, probably all of them, will forget how to smile. Another golden leaf tumbled to the ground, and I looked up to find the tree mostly barren. But still, here and there, leaves fought to hold on. And even though it was a losing battle, next spring those leaves would be back at it again, holding and struggling, struggling and holding onto the chance that they might make it. And even with loss, they do not grow disheartened, they just grow. I took a slight bit of comfort from that tree. Let in the light. My dear friend, 
I have also been where you are now, though I do not recall how I arrived there. I have no memory of going to each window of my soul and pulling the blinds. With each simple movement, I smothered the light, smothered the light, smothered the light, until at long last, I didn't hurt anymore, or so I believed. The soul can survive in darkness, although it cannot thrive there. But once the blinds are pulled, you cannot see the shore for the fog. A window allows the world to see you, and yes, being seen also means being hurt, but being hurt means being alive. If you let yourself be hurt, I promise you will also be healed. Sometimes it just takes a friend to say, Hey, it's a bit stuffy in here. And I will walk with you in your soul, and with each simple movement we will let in the light, let in the light, let in the light. Now isn't that a bit better, my dear friend? Thank you so much for your poetry, Ian. Those are the kind of words that I like to hear. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by liking us on Facebook or donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash sunflowersutras. We'd like to give a special thanks to our patrons, poet Jen Harris, E. Campson, and Heather Aranda for helping us keep this show running. If you or someone you know has some poetry that they would like to submit to the show, feel free to submit to us either via our Facebook, or you can submit the pieces directly to me at tara.bartley at yahoo.com. So long, and farewell.